Hey, welcome to Race to Academia, brought to you from the Race and Ethnicity Caucus of University of Toronto Graduate Students Union, where we talk to students and professors about race and race-related issues within academia and showcase the academic work and research of racialized graduate students. We will start with an interview and end with a two to three minute student highlight of the research they are conducting in their own words. I'm Joe. And I'm Maylon. On this week's episode of Race to Academia, we interview Fallon Bennett, who is doing her Master of Public Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. She discusses her research in Black maternal mortality and specifically how social and economic policies directly and indirectly impact Black maternal health. After our interview with Fallon, Christine Kwong will tell us about her research. Christine is a PhD candidate in the Department of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto and is focusing on the relationship between physical activity and mental well-being in post-secondary students with ADHD. Let's jump right into our conversation with Fallon. Welcome, Fallon. Thank you for joining us today. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Um, it's going well. It's going okay during the pandemic. How about <laughs> yeah, you? Sense a little, sense a little hesitation in that answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like a long day already, so yeah. I mean, but we have the wonderful opportunity to talk about some important issues. Yep, I look forward to it. Yeah, Joe and I were talking earlier about how being in grad school on its own is already a challenging uh, endeavor. And like within the pandemic, it's already been super, super tough. Um, and we both have like five assignments due next week. And I'm sure you're really busy as well, Fallon. Um, mm -hmm. I was saying to Joe, I've been going on walks and trying to work out and drink my water <laughs> to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you're doing any of the same things or how you're taking care of yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think throughout the pandemic, there's been like different methods of trying to <laughs> alleviate stress and deal with everything. I think right now I'm just focused on spending more time with like my two little sisters. Um, so that's been like a source of just like fun and happiness for me, but also um, taking more time to myself for myself in the evenings. So at a certain point in time, it's supposed to be seven, sometimes it's eight, just like turning off my work laptop, um, getting my tablet and like just watching Netflix. So <laughs> I feel like that's so hard, though, these days where you just, you know, you're looking at your computer and then it, it the the hours just kind of bleed over. And, this, and at least for me, I'm kind of in a basement. And so I, I don't even really know what time it is for the most part. So it's like to being able to actually shut the computer off because it is there's is never ending work that can be done, it seems like. Yep, but setting up those boundaries is important, right? Like, I feel like at one point in the pandemic, I was working hours that weren't even, like, humanly possible. <laughs> so now I'm just like, no, like, this is, I, I have to just do what I need to do at this point. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it's such a great point, especially considering that we really don't know how much longer we're really going to be kind of in a lockdown as it is right now, so... I mean, I am looking forward to actually being able to see the outside, really, <laughs> with other people. It's the bare minimum these days, really. Right? Like, yeah. just to, yeah, I would love to sit down in a restaurant, like, just, just <laughs> once, but when it's all over. Well, that's actually, I, I was talking to somebody else, and just being able to sit at a Starbucks and do work, yeah. just do something just outside of your house. Yeah, I've been saying that, right? Like, even just getting a coffee after work, like literally just going to a cafe after work in my work clothes <laughs> and sitting down. Like those are the, the dreams I have now. Uh, exactly. It's the small dreams that make it, you know, all worthwhile, it seems. Yep, exactly. 
Uh, Fallon, would you like to let us know like what's your program and then what's your research on? Yeah, so um, right now I'm a master of public health student at the Dalana School of Public Health at U of T. Um, and my program, so I'm in the social and behavioral health sciences program, also known as health promotion. So it is a course-based master's, but I am doing a research project with Dr. Arjman Siddiqui. And we're looking at Black maternal mortality. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I think Joe and I were both in Dr. Siddiqui's class last semester, and we were uh, blown away by the class um, and the research that you shared. Game-changing. Um, seriously. Um, I remember you said before that you did some work on uh, Republican voting and how that impacts Black maternal health. Was that correct? Yeah, so that is um, sort of what we're building up with. Um, with the Black Maternal Mortality Project. So it has different phases because it like is a very large project. But essentially, I am interested in looking at how like social and economic policies affect health for Black communities. And in this instance, um, Black maternal health. But um, Dr. Siddiqui wrote a paper with a few other researchers and authors just looking at deaths of despair and Republican vote share and how when we think about um, Republican voting patterns in America as sort of proxies for like economic angst and anxiety and a whole slew of other sort of racial and social um, issues and their implications and then how those sort of voting patterns can affect policy, social and economic policy, which directly and indirectly dictate health. So in the case of my research project, I'm really interested in sort of seeing how Republican votes share as a proxy for like fiscal expenditure and welfare expenditure, sorry, fiscal spending and welfare expenditure and other sort of topics, how that then trickles down all the way to black maternal morbidity and mortality. So then for this research project, is this something that you're looking at what years is this is this something that's kind of in like the more recent so in mm -hmm. the last kind of election or is this going back a little bit further yeah so right now we um are looking at data so the mortality data is from 1999 to 2019 um, and that would correlate with the um federal voting elections between 2000 and 2016. So we're sort of looking at the change in Republican vote share at the county level in America between, um, as I said, 2000, 2016, and then how that correlates to Black maternal mortality rates between 1999 and 2019. Have you seen uh, any shift in outcomes since 2016 from a certain president? Um, <laughs> yeah, that um, so we haven't really gotten to that part of the research yet. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I guess we all have our speculations just based on like policy changes and stuff like that. But we haven't been able to do that part yet. Um, Victoria, who's like my, my colleague, Victoria and I have ran some preliminary sort of analyses. And we have mm -hmm. seen that there is a relationship between black maternal mortality at the county level and Republican vote share. But these are very early sort of research, um, like research findings. So we still have a long way to go to elucidate 
the exact relationship, elucidating the um, exact nature of the relationship, how different variables, different socioeconomic variables contribute to that relationship. But yeah, it, it would be great to also see the exact changes from 2016 to now. Um, it's just about having that data, right? Like what data is available for us to sort of see that relationship. The other thing as well is that maternal mortality in America is something worth studying just because one, any sort of mortality, especially when it comes to maternal mortality, is something we need to take note of since we know that the basic indicator of any of any community's well-being is really found within how well like the most vulnerable or marginalized individuals in the society are doing. And oftentimes that is that happens to be women and children. But on top of it, um, the maternal mortality crisis in America is racialized, right, where African-American women are dealing with maternal mortality rates that are comparative to some third world countries. Wow. Um, yeah. So for us, it's about creating a body of research and looking at all the possible causes of it to ameliorate what is going on with black women in America. And then at the what's the, the hope? For the research to be able so is this something where you're you're hoping for kind of policy changes are you looking to kind of be able to look a bit more on the i guess community-based level like what what is mm -hmm. what is the hope um it's interesting because as a master's student i feel um like yeah you know i have all these ideas and all these places where <laughs> i think it should go but I do think that there's opportunity for the issue to be like fixed at every level Right. Mm -hmm. And we already see different communities and community groups and communal organizations trying to make the birthing experience better for black people who give birth. Right. Um, I think what needs to happen is not support from governments in terms of policy and in terms of mitigating those social and economic forms of disenfranchisement that make it hard for both the person giving birth and also um, the infant. Right. So in terms of income support, in terms of closing the racial wealth gap, in terms of providing housing and just education opportunities and employment opportunities that are equitable. So, yeah, I do think that my hope is for the research to support any pushes made in terms of policy, but also to just lend support to community groups who are already doing amazing work when it comes to reducing the black maternal mortality rates. That's awesome, Fallon. Um, and I guess I'm curious, because I know that you do your research um, within black maternal mortality in America, but have you seen or do you know of any parallels um, in Canada? Because obviously these issues of socioeconomic um, intersecting with racialized people is not isolated to America. And I know that we have so many of these issues in Canada, mm -hmm. um, but within your research specifically, have you come across that? Yeah, so um, I actually started this research as part of like my Shirk scholarship. Um, and essentially, originally, the goal was looking at what was happening in Canada. So trying to elucidate some sort of relationship or just understanding the state and extent of black maternal mortality in Canada. Um, that sort of got stalled because of COVID-19 and us just trying to figure out how we could access data. Um, the American data that we're using for this study is accessible by anybody, is right on the CDC website. Um, that isn't the case for Canada. 
Um, and on top of that, I really wanted to um, start this research project also to um, just learn how to apply the statistical methods that I've been learning throughout this degree, this graduate degree. So the goal is to do research on what's happening in Black in Canada with um, Black people giving birth. It's just been a bit difficult because one of a there's a lack of race-based data here and then two um the data that is available can be very it can be very strenuous strenuous and difficult to access this data even if it mm. is available in some institutions um so yeah that that's sort of been what's going on there well and that's kind of the unfortunate part is just having access to race-based data right that i and i feel like everybody that you know we've talked to or even within my own research Mm -hmm. that you know being able to think or any paper that you know we have to write for our masters is just looking at race-based data is is almost impossible to find within Canada and it does seem to be such a frustrating point for people who are actually trying to to make change to create you know an equitable society it's quite frustrating mm -hmm. and I think the thing is like, I spent a lot of time thinking about this um in the sense that so I have to or I know of two researchers who have done some qualitative work when it comes to the Black birthing experience in Canada. Um, one being, I think their name is Cheyenne Scarlett and the other person being um, Kayon Christie. So I am close with Kayon and we've talked about just collecting data and trying to just build a body of research that even indicates what exactly the issue is in a Canadian context and the extent of that issue, right? Because we know although Canada and America are very similar nations and our black populations are similar in various ways we also have a lot of differences that can contribute to large disparities in um, the health health outcomes and health states in the canadian context so through kayon's work and even reading cheyenne's work i've been able to see that black women in canada and black people who are giving birth in canada are dealing with similar experiences of anti-Black racism, both within the healthcare system and before they even engage with the healthcare system that can affect maternal and infant health. Um, I think because we don't have the race-based data right now, as I said, trying to figure out the extent to which that is an issue and how it differs for different groups of people throughout the nation, because not all Black people are the same. We are not a monolith is extremely difficult. And then also looking at the intersections of like immigration state um, status, class, um, gender identity, gender presentation, sexual orientation, religion, all of that compounds. But as of right now, we don't have the data to sort of figure out like just how bad it is. Yeah, and it seems like um, an incredible task for a graduate student like yourself to take on. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess moving to our next point, um, and just sort of the, the mandate of this podcast is to talk about um, the racialized experience of graduate students within academia broadly. So would you mind speaking about um, your racial identity and in what ways that identity has shaped your experience as a graduate student or in academia more broadly? Mm -hmm. um, so I am a Black woman um, born and raised in Toronto to a Jamaican mother. Um, and my background's also Ghanaian as well, but I've spent most of like, I guess, um, like like most of my background, I've spent most of my time with my Jamaican um, family. Um, so I think, I, I was thinking about how to sort of describe myself and how to answer this question, 
because I think being a black woman has affected um, nearly every aspect of my life, right? And more also important being a Jamaican woman. Um, I grew up in Toronto's West End and growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to become or what I wanted to do. But I remember that like, all I could really dream to or all I could see to was finishing high school. That was what was most important to me. I didn't know what I was going to do after and I didn't really care because like sometimes being able to dream is a privilege, right? Being able to know that there's life after a certain point is a privilege. When you grow up in certain circumstances, you're concerned with the present because that's all you know, right? You're living to survive. You're not really living to succeed or thrive because that would in order to do that you would have to imagine a future self but you are so preoccupied with surviving in the current that that's not really where your mind gets to um so in that way i've being a black woman has affected everything i've done it affected my childhood my time in toronto um high school and it's affected even my path to grad school which hasn't been linear um but i still appreciate and I still appreciate the path that I've had um, and it's made me who I am today. So, yeah. And and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Dr. Siddiqui is kind of your mentor. Yeah. So um, I did not know Dr. Siddiqui before um, starting the program, um, but Dr. Siddiqui is like my research supervisor, my mentor. Um, she's been a terrific mentor to me throughout this entire degree. So then uh, can you speak a little bit to just to be able to have a mentor who is a person of color, right? Because I, I mm-hmm. feel like in the space that we're in, especially at U of T, um, mm-hmm. finding mentors that are going to be a, like people of color is is going to be quite difficult. So has that shaped your experience to, I mean, I guess in, of course, I mean, I would assume it'd be beneficial in, in a number of different ways, but is there a level of support that you feel like because you are working with her, that's a better experience? Yeah, so I think um, the idea of mentorship and just how that works is interesting in a few ways. Prior to grad school, I did my undergraduate schooling at York University. Um, So I actually completed two undergrad degrees there. And like the best mentor I had at that institution, Dr. Julie Condor, is a white woman. Um, And I would not be where I am today without um, Julie's support. Um, So I think with mentorship especially for people who um, are not white sometimes your mentor may not look exactly like you but they are still terrific mentors and that's something to note right like mentorship comes in different packages it looks um many different ways but you can't really discount somebody as a mentor just because um they they don't look exactly like you but with dr Siddiqui, it's also been um incredibly it's been incredibly rewarding to be able to just talk with her um, as people of color, as black women. Doctor, I've so my time at University of Toronto has been interesting. Um, I've learned a lot of things and it's also been different than my time at York, right? York happens to be in a different part of the city and um, students also, the, the student body is composed, it's, it's a bit more diverse in my opinion, not just by race or ethnicity, but also by social class and other intersections of identity. So coming to University of Toronto was a bit of a culture shock for me, just because there were things that um, I had to deal with at the University of Toronto that I didn't necessarily have to contend with at York. But 
being able to be mentored by Dr. Siddiqui and just learn from her as both a student, as an academic, as a researcher, um, and as somebody who is taking up the rightful space within public health has been monumental and instrumental to the successes I've had thus far. That's incredible. Um, and do you find that you have the same experience when it comes to colleagues who are also racialized? Like, do you have you found that your experience working with them is different than those who are not? Yeah, so I'll speak um, specifically to the two other Black people in my cohort, um, Danessa and Jama, and we are very close. And I think part of that is born out of the fact that once you move up in education, you start seeing less and less people that look like you. So being born and raised in Toronto, we already know that there is there are many institutional and systemic barriers that prevent Black people from even getting to the undergrad level. As I said, though, because I went to York University, you know, there were a few more Black people than I'm assuming people would see at like U of T or Queens or um, Western, for example. But then getting to grad, once you get to grad school, that decreases even more. So within my cohort, even though like Jama and I did not know each other before um, becoming students at Dalana, once we got here, we became very close because it's just been the three of us. Um, and I do find that overall, even outside of like the cohort context, but even like in the workplace or whatever it is, um, as black people, sometimes we, we build community very quickly. And a large part of that is born out of the understanding that like, the further you go up, the less black people they are. And you really just try and find likehood and um, like compatibility in that community in order to survive, right? And that's one of the main reasons why we wanted to to start this podcast is to be able to, number one, I guess, to build that community, to kind of build that conversation, to be able to have more people to think what can be done, right? So mm -hmm. having somebody like you, Fallon, on the show, it's great just because we start to recognize that yes, there can be more people. There's, we all have varying interests and it's about trying to build that community. And so hopefully by having these conversations and having more people and hopefully maybe undergraduates may hear this and may think about what that future could be like in graduate school and, and to see what they can be able to create within our academic space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that definitely definitely reminds me of some advice that like Dr. Siddiqui has given me um, that I think like everybody should hear that like community and just building partnership is so important at the grad level because like, yes, you have your mentors and like, you know, your research supervisors who are great, but like I've been able to just learn so much academically and non-academically from like as I said, Danessa and Jama, even from my um, friend Kayon. And it's gone to the point where Kayon and I um, knew each other four years ago. We lost contact for a bit, but we came back into contact through Twitter last year. And within like a month of coming back into contact with one another, we started like a graduate school organization. We just, we really clicked. And I realized, like I talked to Kayon almost daily now, and it's sort of like, your peers and finding like peers and just finding support is so important, especially when parts of your identity are marginalized by society, because for the most part, you may not be supported by like the historical, um, historically colonial ways of grad school, 
right, your existence and just taking up space in the academy um, is a disruption to that. And very often you receive pushback uh, from the academy as a whole just because of your identity. So finding that connection and those links to your peers, like to your supervisors, yes, but to your peers as well is so instrumental to your growth and just your health and your happiness as well. Dr. Siddiqui coming through again with incredible words of wisdom. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I found, I think that's one reason that Joe and I get along really well is because Joe is honestly probably only the third biracial person I've ever met within academia. And I think having those individual connections and then gradually building to a larger community has been absolutely essential so far in my experience of grad school, but also it's helped me to learn about who I am more. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Absolutely. I. Well, I, I do feel like it is, it's finding that similarity and to being able to have those conversations that you wouldn't normally be able to have it with anyone else or to be able to have that shared experience. It's, it's, it's a very small group, I guess. I guess we can all admit that in, in one way or another. I guess we've all kind of alluded to that. Mm-hmm. So it's, I do um, really appreciate, but also having Rec, I think has been really helpful just to be able to have a, a an organization on campus that can bring us together to have so, like such amazing conversations, but also build the friendships. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I'm really happy um, that you two have found each other. Like even this past summer with, you know, what I've started calling like the summer of obvious death, obvious black death, where it's just been between COVID, between all of the issues happening mm-hmm. with like Regis Pachinski, George Floyd, like these murders, um being around people who understand what you're going through without you necessarily having to vocal vocalize it has been so important so important this past year um i think sometimes especially the way just like business works and the academy works and schooling works people don't necessarily always take in how much you're expected to do while the world around you is crumbling and I think throughout the summer, really just being able to call, um, like, Denesia Jama or call Kayon or even speak to Dr. Siddiqui and say, hey, this is how I feel. You know, I just turned on the news and I saw this. And not even having to explain why I feel like that, but just having to vocalize how I feel has been enough. And, you know, it's so important, once again, to be around your peers who can pick that up and just provide that support and that comfort it's great that you've been able to find that community. And so for everyone who is listening, we hope that you're able to find that sense of community to be able to find those people who you can share um, exactly what Fallon said, um, to to be able to understand that lived experience and to be able um, to share that in, in detail as you can. Um, so one thing that we like to ask uh, our last question is, uh, what is your advice for people who want to have productive conversations about your research topic or race and ethnicity in general? Yeah, um, I think there's a few things. So the first thing is that race is not biological. <laughs> um, I, I, I learned that from Dr. Siddiqui. That was uh, mind-blowing to say the least. <laughs> right? Like you cannot, like race is a social construct. You cannot look at somebody's DNA. You cannot look at the DNA of two people and figure out who's black and, you know, who is Asian. It can't happen. So that's the first thing. Race is not biological. And in understanding that race is not biological, that means 
all of the implications of like race and health are social. So when people are discussing the ways in which certain groups of people are affected by, you know, certain diseases or certain illnesses, instead of saying like, oh, you know, black people, um, for example, have higher rates of diabetes or hypertension and people say, you know, this is because they're black. No, it's because of anti-black racism right black people mm-hmm. are not intrinsically ill we're not like intrinsically we we, sh- we can't be intrinsically pathologized because there is nothing sick in blackness right and i think that's something that i've been seeing um a lot throughout covid and even before covid where a lot of people think that there is something intrinsically wrong and ill with blackness nothing is right the problems that we see in society are stemming from anti-black racism Um, The second thing about having these conversations of race and health is just for people to take the lead of whatever communities they're speaking about. So if you are speaking about Indigenous communities, understand what is important to Indigenous communities and giving them the voice. If you're speaking about Black communities, it's the same thing. Mind you, these communities are not a monolith, right? So even speaking to one, two, or ten people from these communities isn't enough because everybody's different. But just understanding that yeah, like taking the lead from these communities as to what they need when it comes to their health and who they are and how they feel and what's required of society necessitates us just um, listening to these communities and putting them as a priority and in the forefront. Well, Fallon, thank you so much for that advice. Um, I think Joe and I will definitely take that into consideration into our own conversations and we hope that all of our listeners do as well because Those are both um, incredibly, I think, often misunderstood ideas, um, but incredibly, incredibly necessary when having these conversations. Um, So thank you so much, Fallon, for joining us today on Race to Academia. This was an absolutely fantastic conversation. I think I can speak for both Joe and I when I say we are incredibly impressed by you and the work you do. Um, 100%. (laughs) I just hop in there. Um, and we wish you the best of luck in your research endeavors, and we can't wait to see what you're going to do. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Wow, that was an incredible conversation. What do you think, Joe? I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, Fallon just opened my eyes to so many different things. I think two really important ideas that she brought up and something that I've also thought about quite a bit, I guess, was the number one that whatever if you are uh, studying or you are a part of uh, when you are looking at a specific racial or ethnic group community uh, that it is important to have members of that community as a part of your research to be able to inform way how you're looking at it maybe the problems that are actually facing the community rather than just assuming what the problem is so i thought that's really important especially considering what my research is And number two, I think, is also just finding a community that you can connect with and be supported by, especially in whatever space that you're in, whether that be academia, uh, whether that be in, uh, you know, tech, whatever that space is, finding a community that can support you. So what did you think? Yeah, I totally agree with everything that you said. Um, I really appreciated Fallon's point about how maternal mortality is worth studying simply because um, the basic indicator of any community's health and well-being is found within how well that community's most vulnerable individuals are doing, and often times that's women and children. And because this crisis is of um, high maternal mortality is racialized, I thought that was a really interesting point to make. 
Um, I think too, just on a personal note, Fallon is in the same program as I am and she's one year ahead of me. So just hearing about all the amazing things that she has been exposed to and all the initiatives she's taken, it's it's um, pretty exciting for me. And I'm really excited to see, you know, similar experiences hopefully I could have. Um, and on that note, we'll hear from our student highlight, Christine Kwong. Hi friends, my name's Christine Kwong and um, I identify as East Asian. Um, and uh, I use she, her pronouns. So um, right now I am uh, a PhD uh, candidate and I'm conducting a study examining the relationship between physical activity, mental well-being, and um, adaptive coping in post-secondary students with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, abbreviated as ADHD. So um, the reason why I'm studying um, this particular area is because, um, and this particular population is because relatively very few adults with ADHD attend post-secondary school. And of those who do pursue college, very few uh, complete a bachelor's degree relative to non-ADHD peers. Um, and so um, this is a very, very special subset of a population and that's why I'm so interested in it. Um, so, um, and for the purposes of this podcast, I will use the term college, university, and post-secondary students interchangeably. And the reason why this is so important to study is because students with ADHD are more likely to develop comorbid anxiety and depression disorders, drop out of school, um, they have reported higher levels of stress, experience more social difficulties um, than those without ADHD. So as a result, they are at an increased risk for psychological impairment related to college. Um, so it's particularly important to attend to those factors that can improve psychological functioning coping and social supports in students with ADHD. And so um, while that it's well established that physical activity is good for physical and psychological well-being, um, the limitations of th that research is that um, it only focuses on um, cognitive performance and physical activity rates and um, rather than the psychological outcomes of those with ADHD uh, and physical activity. So, uh, and the ones that are um, available are only limited to children. So to date, there are only actually two studies um, that study uh, this area. And however, they're only limited to male-only populations and conducted in the United States. Uh, so my study is actually the first study um, that I know of right now uh, that studies females with ADHD um, in university and uh, Canadian data. Um, so something to think about in regards to um, discussing ADHD in marginalized communities um, would be the topic of educators and how, um, and in the school system, is how racial differences in how adults rate children's ADHD behavior. Um, because given that ADHD diagnosis uh, recommendations are frequently based on the perceptions of the teacher, assessment may be influenced by racial bias. So, for example, uh, racialized children are less likely than white children to receive a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, and so, you know, something to keep in mind and to have dialogue about is like, what does that mean? Um, and perhaps to keep in mind that uh, implications for culturally sensitive monitoring uh, should be intensified to ensure that all children are appropriately screened, diagnosed, and treated for ADHD.
Thanks to both Fallon and Christine for their contributions to this episode, and we'll talk to you in two weeks with more exciting conversations. This podcast was brought to you by UTGSU's Race and Ethnicity Caucus Executive Team. The music was created by Christine Keon, and the artwork was created by Karen Fang and Kashana Danvers. And thank you to the rest of the executive team, Elaine Kagiwada, Danaka Chaharlangi, Miriam Kareem, and Sylvia Vong for all your support.